Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, it's JB3, and we are going to take a deep dive today into this idea of continuing education. And when I mention that, I'm not speaking to it from a traditional social worker perspective where you go to some class, some course, and you sit for an hour or two and you walk out with a credit for a CEU. I'm talking about this thing called life and how we are shaped by our own biases growing up. You get to learn what's acceptable, what isn't, and there's someone feeding you information and in many cases, misinformation that shapes the way that you respond to others in the future. And I I wanna take a, a reflective moment on my own life and some of the things that I've encountered. And at the end, I want you to understand the theme of I'm still learning and That's why when we look at continuing education, we have to be mindful of what we're digesting and also how do we actually apply the things that we're learning. And just out of curiosity, I mean, leave some some feedback. Do you actually attend continuing education sessions? I realize that I, I don't as frequently as I used to. But are you are you taking the time to learn what's emerging in your profession? Are you spending time reading the new literature and hearing from the new voices. I want to I hear back from you all on that. But there's always been a, a gap for me in what I knew, what I was learning, and how do I apply it. And so I want to take you back down memory lane. I want to take you back to my senior year in high school. And my first job was at Wendy's. And the Wendy's I worked at was actually in the suburbs of Detroit. So I was driving about 20, 25 minutes to get there to make $6 an hour. And granted, back in 2005, 2006, that was a lot of money. In comparison, I saw folks making like five twenty-five. dollars I, I thought I was making big bank. And so about this Wendy's, it was in the suburbs in a city called Northville. Things to know about Northville, it's about 6,000 people and 95% of those people are white. What made this Wendy's really interesting was the fact that it was about 95% black as far as people working there on the front line. Um, When you start looking at the management structure, that is where we start to see more white people, um, white women actually. And it was it was interesting now that I'm older and I can reflect on it from a different perspective. The people that we were serving, they were stuck up white kids who lived in the suburbs and went to suburban schools. And here I am not understanding some of the differences in those life experiences. And here I am driving all the way from the city for these six dollars. And in high school, there's certain monumental moments that happen that you want to share with everyone. And for me, that was getting accepted into Morehouse College. Morehouse, as many of you may or may not know, is a historically black college or university, all men's school, that has a world-renowned history. The graduates who come from that institution go on to do great and amazing things. You can look into their history to find out more about some of their alum. And so... When I got the acceptance to Morehouse, that was huge for me. 
it was so huge that I went out of my way to actually tape the acceptance letter on my uniform for school. And I wore it to school and I wanted people to see like, hey, this black boy made it. And I recall very well going to work. And, you know, because my supervisor knew at that time that I was applying to colleges and getting ready for the next step of my life. She asked me about where I had been accepted. And so at that time, I had been accepted to Michigan State. I had been accepted to Morehouse. And I had been accepted to Morgan State. You also notice a lot of historically black colleges. When I explained to her what Morehouse was, as a HBCU, she, she scoffed. You know, she looked at me kind of in, in shock as to, well, why would you go to a historically black college? For you that don't know, historically black colleges and universities have an important role in the African-American community. These were schools that gave black students an opportunity to obtain higher education when virtually no other colleges would. They are in the foundation for black liberation and black exploration when it comes to education. And through the years, these black spaces sheltered black people. It gave us a space to create our voice, to fight for civil rights, to fight for equality and black liberation. And here I am uncertain on how do I articulate that? And why do I have to articulate it? Why does this woman not know these things? Well, she's never had to. And for me, naive 16, 17 year old James was not prepared to have that conversation. And I often think about it as, was this a failed moment on my part? Is this where I messed up? Was this an opportunity to, to educate, to inform? Because there was this white woman talking to me who did not understand the necessity of historically black colleges. I was 16 years old, 17 years old. I didn't have the skills. And I questioned, was it really my responsibility? And now that I'm older, double that age almost, Looking back on it, I'm pissed. How did I let this go? Why didn't I tell her, well, part of the reason why we have historically black colleges is because most of our institutions are predominantly white. White supremacy is real. It reflect, it's reflected in the faculty. It's reflected in the curriculum. It's reflected in who does well and who doesn't. But that's a part of this idea of continuing education. You have to continue to learn. You have to continue to be informed. And... That was just one one moment where I felt maybe I should have done more. And I feel that more so now than I did then. There's another instance when I was a co-chair of a regional health equity council. Now, this particular group was formed of individuals from Michigan, from Ohio, from Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And it was a collective of individuals from academic institutions, health departments, community-based organizations, entrepreneurs, people who were committed to the work of equity. 
in this particular region, Great Lakes region. Shout out to what used to be Region 5. And I love the work because of just that. Everyone was committed. Everyone was intelligent, was passionate. And we all had a vision for the same thing where we wanted to ensure that there were no barriers preventing people from having optimal health. So we were actually brought out to a a meeting, an emergency meeting, where the Office of Minority Health, our federal funder, was contemplating at that time cutting our funding. And it had not been made completely apparent at that moment, but walking in, you knew when you saw the representation and the poor soul that they sent to hear our cries and in many cases heard uh, us bickering back and forth. But we really were there to voice our concerns to the federal government saying, hey, don't cut this funding because it provides essential services to people. We advocate on behalf of individuals who don't have a platform to do the same. And, you know, we're talking about doctors. We're talking about managers. We're talking about people with influence in this room. And during one of the breakout sessions after after we finished the advocacy session, we were talking about strategies for strengthening the council as a whole. So there's 10 regions. And I think I mentioned diverse group. And in this case, there was actually a minority of a majority. There was one white man there who felt the need to talk about the lack of support that he was getting from a Latinx woman. And it went on for a while to the point where it became very clear and very obvious that he was berating her, that he was talking down on the things that she was doing, saying that she was useless, that she offered no value. And here we are, all of us committed equity professionals, and no one said a word. In one of my last performance evaluations I mentioned this as one of the greatest shortcomings that I've had in my professional career that I failed a woman that I failed a person of color that I failed to speak up as someone who's supposed to be an advocate someone who's supposed to be striving for equity that was my moment and not a moment for you know I'm going to do this for clout This was the moment because I needed to make sure that this individual understood what was acceptable in this space. Now, I'm grateful for the facilitator. The facilitator handled it so well. And in so many words, she reminded me of of my mom and saying, you know, this is exactly what we not going to do. And and I'm, I'm grateful for her tact with it because I've often found myself challenged when it comes to maintaining a degree of the white supremacy model of professionalism and being authentic with myself because I could easily cut into my man's because that's what I was raised to do. But in this space of equity, we, we learn to be uncomfortable because we have to do the right thing. And as, as I've gotten a little bit more mature in my work and, and myself, I've learned there's, there's a way to do it. That's generous There's a way to do it that's not alarming, but there's a way to do it that makes sure that people understand where you're coming from. Um, My mom has this quote about, you know, cutting people so bad they don't know they're bleeding. There's a way to do it that way. And I've, I've learned it's as easy as saying, hey, you know, before we move on, 
I'm I'm not feeling right with the way that we're moving. Is anybody else feeling that? And what it does is it takes some of the burden off of you because you could easily look around the room and see everyone else was just as uncomfortable as I was. But it it opens up the space for dialogue and dialogue is an underappreciated tool. You know, we often find ourselves in debate where we have two countering arguments. But how do we flip that on its head and create a space where individuals can just talk and they can share ideas and we can share strategies that doesn't eliminate or exclude anybody else? And back to that that moment in, in Baltimore at the Health Equity Council meeting. I eventually emailed um, the woman who was being spoken about because she actually wasn't even there and just dropped a note about how appreciative I was for her and how she helped me in many ways as a thought partner. And that wasn't even her responsibility. She was actually more of a a coordinator for the project, but she was somebody that I trusted to have dialogue around equity, who could point me in the direction of resources of organizations who are doing the work. And that to me was actually more valuable in many cases than my own region's meetings. And so again, we continue to learn. I don't want to continue to make what I feel to be mistakes, but unfortunately this is the way that things go. And I want to round us out with, with one more brief, brief story. It was November 1st, 2018. I remember the day because it was actually the same day that I got my acceptance into USC. And I've mentioned this on a previous episode that I'm a father to two boys. And one of my boys was not seeing the expected growth and development with his language. And he wasn't responding to his name, spinning in circles. I think you get where I'm going. And we decided that we wanted to have him assessed. And I want to give a special shout out to my wife here for being the mother that she is, being so intuitive, being nurturing, because she knew what the diagnosis was going to be before we got there. And she helped me well before the appointment was even scheduled with accepting that and saying all the right things around me, understanding that life was going to be different. But life didn't have to be difficult. And in giving kudos to my wife, uh, I realize there's so much that I've learned from her when it comes to navigating these educational institutions. I mean, the kids are still in daycare, but the types of questions that she asks of the directors, you know, what is the cultural competency plan for the daycare? What kind of training are you all providing? Let me see the demographic makeup of your providers, things that even as I'm just sitting there, I'm in awe because these are things that I talk about from eight to five. And these are things that she lives every day. So we came out of that assessment with a, with a plan. At least then we knew that we could have the resources that were necessary to support our son. But it actually, it showed me so much more about my responsibility as an individual and my responsibility as a parent. 
one of the things that made my high school unique was the fact that there were two schools inside of it. On one side, you had your general education, 13 through 18-year-old. And on the other side, divided by a wall, there was actually a special needs school. And this was for ages 14 through 19, as they were preparing for these students to learn to live independently. And this was supposed to be a safe environment. And what I saw on many occasions was quite the opposite. We had students who would casually throw around language that that I don't use to this day, so I won't repeat it, but there were certain words that was just tossed around so casually and comfortably that I think of now when I think of what is school going to be like for my child? Will he be bullied? Will he be talked about? And because you know that I have twins, I think about how that interaction is going to be for my other son. And if he's going to have to try to stand up or feel like he has to stand up for his brother all the time, because I don't want him to feel like he has to be that person. He doesn't have to be that advocate. Sure, I would love for him to, but I want him to be able to enjoy his childhood as well. And that's that's a balance that I, I find myself conflicted with quite often. And I never thought, you know, when I would become a parent, I would have a child with special needs. I didn't think about it. I had a friend who told me there's only two things that you want when your children are born. And that is for them to be happy and healthy. But I need to understand the importance of person first language. I need to be able to demonstrate allyship for my son. I need to be able to demonstrate advocacy for my son. Because at some point, I'm going to want him to grow up. I can't I can't hold him forever. And when he grows up, I want him to be autonomous. I want him to be independent. Whatever that looks like for him. In the same day that I got accepted to my doctoral program is the same day that I walked away from a assessment where I learned that my son has autism. And what it did for me was it triggered a series of emotions, but a series of responsibilities. It was a call to action in that very moment. I've been working in the racial equity and health equity space now for what feels like forever. But I know that I need a better understanding of the barriers and the challenges associated with disability. Because if I'm going to make the kind of impact that I say I am, I need to make sure that I am committed to addressing those obstacles. I don't know the privileges that I have that come with ableism. There's a lot that I don't know. And as we think about continuing education in this thing called life, we have to be dedicated to learning as much as we can. Anybody that knows me knows that I love to read. I've got a thousand books sitting on my shelf waiting for the end of this semester. But reading isn't enough. Knowing the information is not enough. You saw that in my example with the Regional Health Equity Council. The position that I want to be in is more proactive. And not just in the knowledge and the competence of the subject matter, but also in how you apply it. How does it show up in practice? And how does it show up in your life? If I remain the same person that I was back in 2005, there's no way that I would be on a podcast talking about why equity matters. 
I want to be able to demonstrate not just the why. Because as much as the why is important, it's also about the how. Because people want to be able to navigate in these spaces. I know there's a lot of fear when it comes to being wrong, being incorrect. That's reasonable. I still have the same fears. I know how I grew up. I knew I grew up in a homophobic environment. I knew that I grew up in an environment that was not always welcoming to the disabled. I want to move to a space of I embrace our differences. I want to see people for who they are in their entirety, in their wholeness. Because that is the only way that we generate authentic relationships. That is the only way that we're going to collaborate in a way that's meaningful. And so it's not about having to react by any means. It's about being proactive, having the knowledge up front and the tools to navigate. Because there's enough isms out there. We're going to be busy for a long time. And I I put this episode together knowing that it's about learning. And it's also about being comfortable with not knowing all the time. I don't have it all together. It's it's clear. I mean, catch me in the end of the semester in my hot ass mess. I'm still learning. And I'm committed to my own continuing education And in some cases, I'm committed to making mistakes and owning them and committing to not doing it again. So as we get ready to wrap up on today's episode of the Equity Matters, remember, continuing education is important. Even if you're not sitting in some classroom or on some webinar, you need to be creating space. You need to be creating space to learn. You need to be in spaces with dialogue. You need to be in spaces with other voices that don't sound like yours. Let me know how you're continuing to learn, how you're continuing to stay informed. What spaces are you going to? Who are the trusted thought partners in your lives? Leave me a comment. And until next time, you already know, equity matters. Equity matters.